Amen. Thank you, Aaron and choir and musicians. Powerful music, powerful words that we sing this morning. It's so good to hear your voices. Maybe it's because the, the vaccinated folks without their mask on, I can hear more voices. Can y'all hear more people are coming to? It's just great to, to see the energy and to hear people singing again. Our choir is going to hopefully get out of mass soon. We're working towards that. We're trying to be uh, loving towards everyone. And uh, of course, we upset people on both sides with our mask policies, but uh, that's okay. We're going to continue to do what the, the Lord calls us to do the best we can, make the wisest decisions. I do appreciate David Gregory and the coronavirus advisory team. That's got to be the worst team ever, but uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, <laughs> but uh, they have done a great job in advising us from a medical perspective and, uh, and uh, architectural perspective, and they know a lot more than I do about these things, and uh, we are, are following um, their best guidance. So thank you to, to them for trying to keep us safe and trying to help us, most of all, accomplish our mission to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to make disciples of all nations, and that's the goal. So, you know, I've gone to school for a long time. I have uh, multiple, you know, of those pieces of paper on my wall in my office. I don't know if that's pretentious or not, but uh, probably is. But uh, perhaps they're right when they say that experience is the best teacher. You heard that before? Experience is the best teacher. And when they say that, you know who they are, right? I don't know who, who they are necessarily, but when they say experience is the best teacher, they don't mean the good experiences normally, do they? They're referring most likely to those hard, those difficult experiences that have a way of teaching us lessons that we could not learn from reading a book or writing a paper on it as most of my classes, I mean you guys that are scientists and other things got to do experiments and fun things. Uh, all my classes were read this book, write about it, read this book, <laughs> write about it, maybe discuss it a little bit, but that's all I did in school basically. And you can't learn lessons uh, that you learn from life uh, necessarily by going to school. And one of the experiences that God has given to, to me and to Morgan that has taught us maybe the most uh, in this life is the experience of parenting. Parenting is not for the faint of heart, as we have found. You know, honestly, I thought we kind of had it figured out with Jude and May. They were, you know, pretty easy kids, honestly. And I was like, man, we're killing this thing. You know, we're doing great right now. We're really crushing it. And then uh, God gave us a third child to remind us that we don't have it all figured out and that uh, we are not God's gift to parenting. Despite the millions of books that have been written on this subject, there is no magic formula there is no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to parenting. Children can bring us such unbelievable joy. I remember the first time Jude scored a goal. Get ready for that, Ryan. When Wesley scores his first goal, I mean, something, you know, weirdly uh, visceral uh, came up within me. And I was like, yeah! And then I was like, oh, that's why parents fight at these you know, baseball games and stuff. I see, that, I get it now, I understand. It's uh, strangely uh, unnatural uh, how it just uh, comes up from inside of you. They can also bring you such unbelievable sorrow. Nothing can frustrate you more than your children. I've talked to many of our church members who've asked me to pray for their wayward adult children who have made choices 
that have led them down a path that is not a good path, that has led them down a road of heartbreak and destruction. And it grieves these parents' souls so greatly to see their kids make these decisions. They're so deeply burdened for their children. They want their kids to return to the Lord. They want their kids to make wise choices. They want their kids to flourish. And they know the way to flourish is by following God's ways. And it breaks their heart. And I pray for, I have several of these adult children on my prayer list that I pray for on a daily basis because church members have asked me to. Can you believe that this is how God sees us? Did you ever put yourself in the shoes of we are that wayward child? We are that which brings such unbelievable joy and such unbelievable frustration and sorrow to the heart of our heavenly Father. You know, it's easy to read about God's children in the Old Testament and to think, these guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. They, they just don't get it. Over and over again, they keep making the same bad choices. God sends them prophets in his grace and in his mercy to say, stop it. <laughs> and they say, okay, yeah, we'll stop it. And then they just go back and do the same bad choices again. But let's remember that we, the church, are now the covenant people of God. We are God's family, we are God's children. And therefore, we ourselves are those stubborn and wayward children so often that the Lord just shakes his head at us. When we see Isaiah or the other prophets speaking to God's children, let's remember they are speaking to you and to me that we are the set-apart, sanctified, empowered people that God has called to be his own possession, to fulfill his purposes, to be the conduit of his grace and love in the world. So today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 30. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. We're going to hear Isaiah in chapter 30 describing God in ways that are familiar to those of you who have ever been frustrated with your own children. Uh, despite our advanced age, some of us more than others, I heard Dr. Sherman say that they're going to be 68 years married this August when our church turns 80. It's incredible feat. Uh, despite our advanced learning and degrees, despite our advanced achievement and what we've uh, accomplished in this world, it's important to remember that we are not the parent here. We are the children. And every one of us still very much like to choose our way over our heavenly Father's way. So look at verse 1 as we begin our text for today, Isaiah 30. Ah, stubborn children. <laughs> stubborn kids, declares the Lord. Don't make me come back there, is what, it's, what it sounds like. Who carry out a plan, but not mine and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, an appropriate term for Pentecost Sunday, that they may add sin to sin. They keep choosing sin, and then they go and sin, and then they go and sin. They don't stop. They keep making plans, but they're not God's plan. Jude, our oldest, will turn 12 when our church turns 80 uh, this August. He'll be 12, and you know, he's starting to feel his oats a little bit. You know, he's, 
in middle school now. He's going to start sixth grade at J.T. Moore next year. And, uh, you know, there's a, a occasions where despite, you know, he and May being our good older children, uh, excellent, amazing kids that they are, there's times when we have to remind him of who we are and who he is, that we're the parents and he is the child. He's a little more bold now in how he speaks maybe, but uh, we have to remind him every now and then. And we have to stop him and, and say, you, may, you might need an attitude adjustment. Your parents know what I'm talking about. You know, my mom is loving this stage of life, by the way, because every time we get frustrated with our kids, she, she laughs because she sees me in them and she sees it as payback for all the grief that I gave her growing up. Jude's a smart kid and, and so was I. I thought I knew everything by the time that, you know, I was a, a preteen. Uh, I had it all figured out, or if I didn't, I sure didn't need my parents to tell me because what did they know? <laughs> I didn't need them to weigh in on anything. Sometimes we all need that attitude adjustment to get right with our parents and to get back on the good track that they've laid out for us because they have our best interest at heart and they actually know more than we do. What we're going to see here in Isaiah 30 is the, the stubborn children of God who've chosen to go their own way. They've chosen what way they think is best for themselves rather than trusting in the plan that their loving Father has chosen for them. The first thing we're going to see here in verses 2 to 7 is that in order to get our attitudes right with our Heavenly Father, we're going to have to turn from false saviors to real help. And the only reason the saviors is capitalized there is because it's a, it's a point. But it's important to remember these are little s saviors. These are counterfeit gods. These are idols. These are things that we run to that are not the sovereign Lord. Look at verse 2 as Isaiah addresses his stubborn children. You stubborn wayward children who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Of Egypt of all places is what God's saying. How, how do you not see the irony in what you're trying to do? You know, verse 1 said that these people carry out a plan, but not mine. It really is hard for our kids to trust that we know more than them, isn't it? It's hard for, for me at 13 to think that my parents actually knew more than me, but of course they did. You know, it's hard as kids, you know, to be convinced that our parents actually have more life experience and more knowledge and more wisdom. You know, it's easy to laugh at us as 13-year-olds and say, yeah, teenagers, yeah, they're the, they're the worst, right, Evan? That's what they always say, you know, if something's broken around here, it's all oh, the, the youth probably did it. <laughs> but we, we do the exact same thing. Whenever we choose our way over God's way, we are that same 13-year-old middle schooler making that sad choice. That's a word we use in my house a lot. That's a sad choice. <laughs> we make sad choices all the time. 
God's people were threatened, remember, in this time period by the mighty Assyrian Empire, the brutal uh, Assyrians who are marching west and they're just conquering city after city, kingdom after kingdom. And they are, you know, reports of their brutality and their violence are reaching the people of Judah and Israel and they're scared. So they go running. People of Judah say, I know. Egypt's cool. Egypt's a big place. They, they have chariots and they have a lot of weapons. Let's go to Egypt and they'll protect us from Assyria. But it was precisely for such a time as this that God had chosen them to be his own as a weak little country to prove to the rest of the world that his sovereign power was enough that as he done over and over again to show the world that he alone is God, that he's the one who's controlling all of history and that his chosen people will prevail. That's how Gideon, right, defeated the entire Midianite army. He had 20,000 men and then he kept saying, nah, it's too much. It's not gonna be obvious that the Lord did this. So you guys go away. And he winnows the, the group down to 300 men. And that's how he defeats the entire Midianite, Midianite army to prove that the sovereign Lord is the one who wins the victory, not human armies. So God had said to his precious children time and time again, let's go through this together. Let me help you. Let me walk with you. I'm able to see you through this, but they wouldn't listen. Here they go down to Egypt for protection. Maybe they can save us, you know. But remember, it hadn't been that long since the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. Think of the irony. They longed to go back to their former slave masters in order to obtain freedom. They're looking for freedom and they go to the slave masters. We, we tend to do the same thing. We trade slavery from one thing for slavery to another thing instead of finding real freedom in the only place where it's found in the sovereign Lord of all creation, the one who's most worthy, the one who's most beautiful, the one who's most life-giving. Egypt can offer God's children nothing that they don't already have in the Lord. Long ago, back in Leviticus chapter 26, back in the, the Torah, God told his beloved children these things. Look at verses 9 to 13 in Leviticus chapter 26. I'll turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you incarnationally through Jesus and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, that, that was fulfilled in Jesus, and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be slaves anymore, no longer slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I've given you freedom to walk with your head held high and not in fear of your slave owners anymore. That's what God's done for you, brought you out of Egypt. And yet they still are looking to Egypt for help. Who do we turn to for help? Who do we look to when times are tough? 
We make our own plans to find help often in every other place before we go to the only one who really can help. The question then becomes, does our father really know best? Is our father actually capable of helping? Will we continue to act like, you know, 13-year-old Nathan and pretend that we have it all figured out? I love that illustration of, you know, a mosaic where the, the pieces are put in place by a master artist. And when you're up close, you can't tell what it is. But when you step back, you can see the beautiful picture. We see about two inches in front of our face. We can't tell what's going on. But God's the master artist. He's the one who's putting the tiles in place in the first place. He sees the big picture. We only see a little slice of it. Look at the consequences that inevitably come when we go our own way. Verse three, verse three says, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, turn to your shame. Instead of walking with your head held high, you'll walk in shame. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Then verse seven, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I've called her Rahab who sits still. Rahab who does nothing. Rahab is a word that not only was she the one who helped Caleb and Joshua to get into Canaan, but the word Rahab means chaos or, or loud noise. It's just the, all this busyness, this noise that doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't actually accomplish anything good. That's the idea of Egypt here. That leads us to our second point. Our attitude adjustment that we need is, is going to require us to turn away from misleading lies that seem sweet and seem tempting to follow and to buy into and turn from those to the life-giving truth, which often is a hard truth that we don't want to hear. You know, several years ago, late night, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's hilarious, the late night TV host Stephen Colbert coined a word truthiness, truthiness. It actually became the 2006 Merriam-Webster word of the year. You know, truthiness is defined as, quote, belief or assertion that a particular statement is true based on the intuition or perceptions of some individual or individuals without regard to evidence, logic, intellectual examination, or facts. The novelist Flannery O'Connor once wrote, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. <laughs> In our current culture of living out your truth, <laughs> live out your truth, find your truth and live it out. How many times was that said at graduation speeches across this country this last week? If, if, if it's your truth, then I'm sorry, it can't be true. It can't, because truth is universal. Truth is public truth. Truth with a capital T. Truth necessarily cannot be different for you and me. If something is true, then it must be true for all of us. And that's hard for us, especially you Gen Zers and you know, us, maybe I'm kind of an older millennial, uh, maybe millennials to some extent, because it's cold, it's objective. The objectivity of truth means that maybe, just maybe, I, I might be wrong. <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. I might not know it all. 
If there is objective truth out there, then I must remain humble and teachable and open. But you know, I really prefer to continue to believe that my truth is sufficient. Thank you very much. It's that same kind of stubborn pride, really, that keeps us from knowing the truth. The key is to open our hearts to whatever the sovereign Lord wants to say to us. And the key to opening our hearts is to trust that not only does God have the truth and know all the truth, but he speaks that truth with love and with grace as a good father who wants what's best for his children. Every truth he gives us is for our own good and ultimately for his glory and for his mission. Our father is a good, good father who actually knows what is best for us. Let's trust in that because the alternative is not good. Look at verses 12 to 14. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments, not a shard is found for, with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. Our carefully constructed defense mechanisms, our truth that we build around ourselves comes crack, crashing down when the tiniest crack appears. How many times does this happen to college students who think they have it all figured out? And then a crisis comes and everything comes crumbling down. You know, once we uh, had an experience where all of our defenses are proven to be weak and false, then our world shatters. Don't let it come to that. So look at the, the other option. Yeah, I forgot to mention, this is the, the second point here. The second point is that our attitude adjustment is, it is going to require us to move from misleading. I did say that. Move from the lies to the truth, the hard truth. And that alternative is not a good one. Look at the other option in, in verse 15 and 16. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. What a beautiful promise. In quietness and in trust, shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. And you said, no, we're gonna flee upon horses. <laughs> I love it, God says, rest in the truth and you'll be saved. And you say, no, we're getting on horses, fast ones. Therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. That's the irony behind it. We think we're getting away, but you know, the true way of salvation is not to run. The true way of salvation is to rest in what is true. The way of salvation almost requires a pacifist approach to sit back and not contribute anything to it. We don't give anything towards our salvation in returning and in rest, repenting and sitting in God's truth, we shall be saved. One commentator said it this way, if God does not protect me from my guilt and sin, I have no defense at all. His way is my only plan. I will not complicate the finished work of Christ 
on the cross by justifying myself. If Jesus can't pay for my guilt, I'm damned. If the Holy Spirit isn't enough to fill my heart, I'm empty. But I will not fill myself with plastic substitutes, the false gods, the false saviors. All I need, all I desire is the plan of God. Isn't that great? Repentance is all that's required. Repentance, returning to the Lord and faith, trusting in him, that's the way to God's salvation and strength. But running our own way is only expediting the disaster that befalls us. It's, it's only taking us further from contentment and peace and joy and true help in times of trouble. Running our own way, we, we miss out on all that God has for us at our work, at our homes, in our play, in our church, in our, our worship, all those things. Point three, the attitude adjustment that we need involves turning from complaint to real hope. I can complain with the best of them. I can get real whiny. I can get wallowing in self-pity right there in that muck where Satan would love to keep me. The Lord says, you know where this is going. Get up, wash your face, get up and, and get going. We know where the hope is, is taking us. Instead of the selfish fear that we're tempted to give into about what might happen to us, God desires for us to live in this settled confidence that we know where all this is heading. We know who wins. We know the outcome. We know who holds the future. Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. That means all the wrongs are going to be made right, and you don't have to do it. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Go back one slide, Miles. That said that God waits. It says that God waits to be gracious to you. And then at the, the end of it, it says, so you should wait. Go to the next part of 18, Miles. So all those who wait for him are blessed. God waits and we wait is what it's saying. But the grammar in the Hebrew here shows us that the waiting is not the same. It's not the same. We wait for him in faith, in openness, in humility, knowing that he is right on time, that his ways are always best, that he is indeed a God of justice. But God waits to show grace to us by putting up with us like a good father who is patient with his stubborn children. Basically, he's eternally patient with us. I am not a patient person. I've confessed that before. I'm working on it. God's working on me, I should say. He's not done with me yet, thank the Lord. I tend to raise my voice when I want my kids to move faster, <laughs> when I want them to do what they're supposed to do. I get impatient. But let's reverse the table here. Remember, it's God who waits on us. It's God who looks at us and says, come on, get going. Do what, what I've called you to do. I want to see you thrive and flourish. Get going. Basically, he is a good father who waits on us. Look at the news. You see all the dismal things that humans are involved in. God must just shake his head continually and say, really? Haven't we been over this? It's not going to work out well 
if you go that way. His faithfulness, his faithfulness, not ours, is what we can look forward to. So when we find ourselves asking the question, how long, O oh Lord, his answer may be whenever you're ready. I've been waiting here, ready to go, waiting for you to get there. Look at verses uh, 19 to 21. He'll surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You'll scatter them as unclean things. You'll say to them, be gone. I love that. Our worthless idols that we think are so cool and shiny, we say, get rid of these stupid things. Stupid is not a good word in my house. Sorry, kids, don't say that. We get rid of these false idols that we don't need anymore. That, that great gift of God is that even in times of desperation, and it says here that he's the one who takes us through those times of affliction, his great gift is himself. He promises to show up and to show himself to us, that we get to see what's happening behind the scenes, that God is working, that he's present and real to us in those moments. And the breakthrough for us comes when we see God for who he is, that's when we toss those false saviors out in the garbage as fast as we can. Because all we need is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. That's where this is headed. No matter where we find ourselves in life, we're in good shape with him. If we have God's nearness, then what can harm us? Who can be against us? Come what may, we're gonna be okay as we rest in him. That brings us to our fourth and final attitude adjustment to turn from despair to deliverance. Though we face overwhelming odds, though we may see uh, the brutal Assyrians on our doorstep about to come over the horizon, we need not fear. Why? because the Lord God is with us and we know who he is. Look at verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. Skip to verse 31. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord. We just had the name of the Lord. Now we have the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And then skip to 33. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king is made ready. It's pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord. We had the name of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Now we have the breath of the Lord. Like a stream of sulfur kindles it. The breath of God lights that funeral pyre for the king of Assyria just like that. We're about to go off the air soon, but I want y'all to see that we know who God is. The voice of the Lord instills great fear in the hearts of our enemies. 
You know, our youngest son, uh, Isaiah, and I had dropped Jude off at school at J.T. Moore the other day, and uh, we were walking uh, around the track there at Green Hills Park, and suddenly we heard screaming, and 600 middle schoolers came running out for field day. And I was like, oh, we're going to be in the middle of this. And Isaiah grabbed hold of me because these kids were, you know, they're big. Some of these kids are bigger than me, as Jude reminds me. And, uh, and Isaiah clings to me, and he said, Dad, if one of those kids tried to hurt me, you would, you would just destroy them, wouldn't you? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Yeah, I'd destroy them. Yeah. <laughs> he knows that I'm going to keep him safe. He knows that no matter how rowdy these big eighth graders get, that as long as his dad's with him, he's going to be okay. That's what we can trust in with the presence of the Lord. He becomes a strong ally to us. The breath of the Lord is so scorching, all it has to do is blow, and evil is consumed before it. He burns with intensity about the holiness of his name. The name of the Lord is fully revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the arch enemy of all evil and, and brokenness, of everything that's wrong in this world. And he's intense about fixing it. It's who he is at his core, so much so that he died to break the curse of evil and to break the hold of, of destruction over his children, stubborn though they be. And he's coming again. He's coming again in power and in glory to put a stop to evil forever and no power can stand against him. The voice of the Lord silences everyone else and he is coming again. When we put our faith in Christ, when we've been made right with him, we experience an intimacy with our good father he becomes the strongest ally possible. Let's not forget him. He won't forget us. It'll always go better for us when we let our father do the fighting. And then look how it ends up. Beautiful promise in verse 29. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. We're going to have a feast with music and dancing and goodness. We know that's where the story is pointing. Have you honestly thought about how God sees you? How does God see you? He knows you and he loves you more than you ever thought possible. But maybe he's also a little frustrated with you. Maybe he's also like stubborn child. Stubborn child, why do you continue to go your own way. Maybe he's offering you an attitude adjustment today. Maybe he's having a heart-to-heart -heart with you right now as a means of course correction because like a good, good father, he has your best interest at heart. He wants to see you flourish because he created you to flourish. And you only flourish when you turn from false saviors to real help. Let's turn from the misleading lies of this world that we're bombarded with every day and let's look at the life-giving truth, hard as it may be. Let's stop complaining and, and, and wallowing in that pit of self-pity and despair and live with confident hope. It's a much happier way to live, I promise you. And let's move from despair and worry uh, and let's move to deliverance, trusting that the Holy One of Israel the rock, our refuge, our redeemer will not move. Is an unshakable, undestructible force 
where we can rest and dwell secure and be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word promises that for those who put their trust in you, that we will not be put to shame, that we can walk with our heads held high, that we can know that you're going to win. That just like at the park, Isaiah clung to me when we cling to you, we know that no matter what comes against us, we're gonna be okay. Yes, we will go through evil experiences. I've been through uh, things where evil people did evil things. And yet, God, you spare us from the evil that's in those acts. We're not subject to the enemy any longer. We're subject to you. You are our, our king. You are our father. And we are your children, your precious and beloved children whom you have created in order to thrive and to flourish. God, forgive us when we're so curved in on ourselves that we just worry and we just complain and we can't remember that you have redeemed us, that you've called us to be part of your perfect family by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've made us your own, you've adopted us. That's what Romans eight tells us. So that we can trust in you, in rest, in, in returning. We can be saved. We find strength with you as our ally. God, help us to walk more closely with you as we learn to trust that your ways are best, that you know what time it is, what's going on, and you know where we are. And you love us more than we could ever comprehend. And you have our best interest at heart. May we follow your ways as revealed through Christ and scripture. May we trust in them over everything else that this world tells us. And may we do so in a way that leads to not only our own flourishing, but to the flourishing of the world as your kingdom comes and as your will is done here as it is in heaven. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe today you say, I need an attitude adjustment. We all do in a big way, we do. But maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the very first time. And you say, I need to surrender all that I am to Jesus and follow him and become his child. Maybe you've never experienced that adoption into his family. There's no better time to do so than right now. Maybe you need to be baptized. We're gonna have water up here next week. We're gonna see three of our uh, new members baptized. They're all here today, Doyle and the Schlamps. It's gonna be a special time. Maybe you say, I've never been baptized in believers baptism. I've never followed Jesus's example of, of being uh, immersed in, in water to show that I've died to myself and risen to a whole new life. Maybe you need to make that commitment today. Maybe you're struggling with addiction and you need to talk to, to Eddie or Ron about, or Haley about uh, Celebrate Recovery. And it could be addiction to anger or food or, or anything that you're dealing with, uh, whatever it may be. Maybe you're ready to see those chains broken by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is that you need to do today, maybe you just need to come and pray at the altar. It'll be open. I'll be here to talk with you. Let's stand and sing. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Let's sing these words together.